Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power for those too lazy to read. Uh, we started off with the usual links I liked. Uh, I think my favourite one was the poster spotted in a bookshop window somewhere in the UK saying, please note, the post-apocalyptical fiction section has been moved to current affairs, which kind of sums up how we all feel, I think, in this country. Um, there was a bit of good news. The government's reversed a decision um, to uh, cut the amount of time that students can work after graduating foreign students. They now get a two-year visa, which is much better than the four months it had been reduced to. So my LSE students are going to be happy. And a spectacular own goal by Forbes magazine, who asked four men to come up with the 100 most uh, you know, brilliant, innovative leaders uh, in the world, and they came up with 99 men and one woman. Um, and they then defended their, uh, when people went crazy about it and said, how can you possibly um, do that by saying, this was data-driven, there's nothing sexist here. To which I think the obvious answer is, well, okay, let's have a look at what you consider to be innovation and the metrics you use to measure it. And we might just find a few gendered um, uh, biases in there. Anyway, um, next day uh, we had Harpreet Kaur Paul um, talking about climate change in advance of the uh, Climate Week of Action, which has just kicked off. I've just been on an absolutely wonderful demonstration in London, just yeah, all ages, such diversity, lots of wit and humour and, and real, real anxiety about the state of the climate. Harpreet wrote about um, the, went back to the issue of how do you pay for, for, for tackling climate change and arguing that you know, inequality in impact and inequality in the responsibility for emitting should be reflected in the inequalities of who pays. And her argument is that the market, the attempt to find market mechanisms has actually let some of the bad guys, some of the you know, historically most culpable countries off the hook. And we need to get back to that idea of, the, in the jargon, common but differentiated responsibilities. You know, we need to have a sort of polluter pays principle in tackling climate change. Then I had uh, Naomi Hussain. I found this fantastic way of um, uh, writing book reviews, which is not to write them. You just get the author, stick a microphone on them and ask them about their book. And it's much more fun and I think more accessible than a sort of ponderous book review. So I sat Naomi down at a conference recently and asked her about a book she co-edited with Sam Hickey on the politics of education in developing countries. Very sort of serious political science research on six countries and the issue they were looking at is quality. So all the attention in the last 15, 20 years has been on quantity, getting kids into school. But increasingly, people are talking about a learning crisis, that when you get them into school, they then don't learn anything. You've got kids coming out of primary school who can't read and write. And, and, um, and she and Sam and all the authors in their book were looking at cases where reforms have happened that have improved quality. They're trying to understand it because the politics of quality are very, very different from the politics of quantity and actually much harder. You know, politicians want to be seen opening schools, teachers unions love it because it's more jobs, parents want their kids in school, the, the donors love it because it's easy to measure and badge and you know say rah rah, didn't we do well? Everybody loves quantity. Quality is more contested, more difficult. Um, and uh, there's a number of tricky issues. We talked about some of them. So, you know, to listen to some of the people talking about the learning crisis, you'd think teachers were evil, that they're the problem. Naomi differs. She says the only places where they've had sort of lasting reforms 
in the countries she's looked at, which have worked, is where teachers are seen as allies and assets. It's not just evil teachers' unions trying to prevent reforms, although they have done that, it must be said, but they're also the principal kind of holders of the values and the ethos of public education. They looked at the difference between what they call competitive and dominant political systems. I would call those democracies and autocracies, but apparently that's very um, naive in political science circles. So in competitive circles, i.e. democracies for me, um, it's quite hard to do much from the centre, but so, so the successful reforms are often those that are driven locally by local coalitions at a subnational or local level. In dominant systems, you can have command and control. The president says, do this. Everybody's, everybody does it because they're scared. Um, but then you also get no feedback for when the president says, do something stupid. So when um, Rwanda decided to switch almost overnight from French to English, only 13% of teachers actually had good enough English to teach in. Um, and so, as you can imagine, the quality of education took a nosedive for a while. Um, and also, Naomi's quite hopeful because as far as she can see, the, the, you know, one of the problems with a, creating a political con constituency for quality is that a lot of kids in school now are the product of that first generation of kids to go to school. Their parents don't read and write. Their parents didn't go to school. They're not necessarily well-placed to argue or critique the quality. As you get new generations, second generations, whose parents have been to school, that she thinks the constituency for quality will grow. And that's a nice, nice sort of end to, to the interview. So I did the usual thing. I did the interview, and then I did a transcription of the interview for people who were too rushed to listen to podcasts. Then the last post of the week was by Warren Krafchik, who uh, runs a really interesting organisation called the International Budget Partnership. Uh, works in numerous countries and is trying to sort of increase citizen control and accountability and interest in budgeting processes because, after all, that's how the state, the state speaks through money. Um, and Warren has been following some of the stuff on the blog by me and by Mark Goldring and others on strategic planning. And he wanted, he, th he started thinking of it from the point of a medium-sized NGO like IBP. Uh, and he chose to, he decided to write a letter to a future IBP, you know, IBP 2040, and say, okay, you're thinking about another round of strategic planning. Here's my advice looking at it from 2019. And some of the things he, he raised was choose the moment. It's not always a great time to do strategic planning. It makes sense to do it when the context has changed and you're struggling to understand the new context, when the organization is kind of in a particular moment, say it's grown rapidly or it's had a financial crisis or some shock, it needs to rethink. Those are the moments. Don't just do it for, for its own sake. Um, think much harder about implementation. Strategic planning tends to get stuck in a search for the perfect document, the perfect range of themes. Warren says the bit that really needs to think about is the implementation. Think about who decides. You know, if you have a kind of kumbaya system of 100 people all agreeing something, you might well get a very bland sort of all things to all people document. IBP formed a strategic planning leadership team with the wonderful acronym SPLAT. And that narrowed it down to 14, and then they even narrowed it down a bit further. And then they had a process for then discussing it with the rest of the 100 staff and so on. Make good use of externals. I was one of the externals in their strategic planning. So have people who aren't trying to get a particular result, who aren't invested in a particular department or a particular approach to come in and challenge you. And then his last point, which I thought was a really good one, was don't give up. Don't run out of steam. Don't 
succumb to the pressures to close too early. Hang in there, even if it's painful, which most strategic planning processes are. And on that note, I will leave you for the weekend. Have a great uh, time and enjoy the rest of the summer. Bye.